Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C. diff spores and more. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, here to welcome you to the ninth annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo, November 4th and 5th, 2021. Enjoy the episodes. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. I'm so delighted to introduce Dr. Mark Wilcox. Dr. Wilcox has been a leading expert helping with the COVID-19 pandemic and a true global expert for C. difficile infection. Dr. Wilcox is a consultant microbiologist, head of microbiology and academic lead of pathology at the Leeds Teaching Hospitals, professor of medical microbiology at the University of Leeds and their Institute of Biomedical and Clinical Sciences and is the lead on Clostridioides difficile infection for public health in England in the United Kingdom. Dr. Wilcox's talk is entitled, Using a Gut Model to Predict Which Antibiotics Are Associated with C. difficile Infection and Which Ones Best Treat CDI. Dr. Wilcox, thank you so much for being here. Hello. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I think most of you are in the afternoon, uh, although some of you are still in the morning. Uh, good morning to those. Uh, so, um, the, the, it's kind of a long and in no mean, by no means snappy title to this talk. Um, and I just wanted to spend 30 seconds explaining um, why, why I chose this subject. Um, and essentially, the, 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 there's a, a, a great challenge when um, either selecting drugs to move forward in the clinic um, uh, or to design clinical trials optimally um, as to um, decision-making. Uh, and uh, animal-based models is typically the way that um, decisions are made, certainly early decisions before clinical data are available. Um, but the, the problem in a nutshell with C. diff is that <laughs> Um, different animals, different species respond in different ways when you put C. diff into them. And um, so historically, hamsters, in particular Syrian hamsters, golden hamsters, um, are the model that's being used, the animal model that's being used um, to provide information on how C. diff behaves. Um, and then more latterly, um, other other animals, including mice um, uh, in particular, ha have been used. But these do not solve the problem. And for example, the hamster model is a prevention of death model. So every hamster, without exception, that develops the start of C. diff infection ends by dying unless they're euthanized. Now clearly that is not, thankfully, how C. diff progresses in humans. So just that very simple difference, that stark difference, shows you that whilst we can get important information from hamster models, it's going to be an approximation at best as to how C. diff behaves in humans. So with that in mind, we set about some time ago uh, in developing a model that more accurately uh, reflects uh, C. diff behavior in humans. And, and this work has, has formed uh, certainly for the first um, decade or so um, of this research group's existence. The, the C. diff model work has, has formed a really sort of central component and, and is still a, an important component to this day. And that's the, the website of, of uh, my research group in, in Leeds, which is about 30 individuals consisting of 
doctors, uh, uh, research nurses, scientists, um, uh, bioinformaticians, etc. Now, um, having listened to me, hopefully um, you, you, you've been you know, hearing what I was saying about you know the, the aim of what we're trying to do. You may be somewhat incredulous that a Heath Robinson-looking affair, such as the picture on the right-hand side here, consisting of three glass vessels labelled proximal down to distal with medial in between, uh, and all the paraphernalia and tubes and so on that are around these three glass vessels. How could these possibly accurately reflect what happens in the human large intestine? Because that's what they're modeling. They're not modeling, when we say gut, typically the gut uh, means from your mouth to the anus. Uh, this, what we're interested in here, because the site of C. diff infection is the large intestine, this model is modeling just the large intestine. So when we say proximal, we mean, mean the first part of the large intestine that food um, reaches, or drugs reach by swallowing, medial the middle bit, and distal the far bit. Now this model um, is uh, it's known as a chemostat, and the, the contents are of the top vessel cascade into the middle vessel, and they cascade into the far vessel. And the, the key part of this model, and really the, you know, the, the bit that does make it not only tick, but reflect what happens in humans, is that it's primed with pooled human feces, a fecal slurry, from three to five healthy, elderly, antibiotic-free individuals. And then the whole model is under pH, temperature, nutrients, anaerobic, and time control. And so that the transit time, as, the, as, as fluid and material moves from the top to the middle to the far vessel, um, is 21 hours or so, which is the, the transit time in, in human beings. And very orig originally, we, we, we um, adopted this model from food scientists, and this is over 20 years ago now, now. And those food scientists had already shown that the contents of this model, the bacteria, the microbiome, they mimicked the microbiome in humans who died in road traffic accidents. Because 20 years ago, that the microbiome um, knowledge and our ability to, to, to map that was much more rudimentary. Um, but nevertheless, this, this work was done, as I say, over two decades ago. Uh, so I, I'm going to have to speed up now, obviously, but essentially this model, and there's lots of data, and I'll refer to some of that in the next couple of slides, this, this model very accurately simulates what happens in humans. You might find that hard to believe, but, but it's true. And in fact, it's much more accurate than, than hamster models um, and indeed my mouse models. Uh, we've predicted accurately both the failure, and there are some examples, uh, 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 some, I'll show you some examples shortly, the failure uh, and the success of, uh, of antibiotics and treatments for, for C. diff infection. In the contrary, hamster models, um, which have predicted success, um, uh, have, um, have been shown to be false when, when you actually get to the clinic. And there are some examples in that last bullet there where the hamster said the drugs would work, uh, but the humans said they don't work, or then they're more efficacious than their comparators. Um, and um, so, you know, this is this is just more background to really what I've said. So I'm going to move past it. But if you um, uh, if you put uh, my surname and uh, gut model uh, into uh, a, a PubMed search, you, you'll get 47 hits, uh, and that reflects uh, almost all of those 47s. Are, 47 are actually. Uh, our work, I think it's about 45 actually, there's one out, a couple of out ones. So, so there is, we have a, a very extensive published database now, peer reviewed database, um, showing that the, the efficacy of the gut model. And then we're going to take the remainder of the 
time just to give you some examples um, of that efficacy and that accuracy of, of, the, uh, of the model. So um, we, we refer to this as a human gut model. Uh, as I say, typically, uh, strictly speaking, it's uh, modeling the large intestines. And here, here's a series of um, antibiotics um, that we have looked at to, these are obviously not treat of treatment antibiotics, this is rather answering the question, do these antibiotics induce C. diff infection? And the, 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 the experimental uh, order, what we do think, uh, is shown in the diagram at the bottom, at the bottom um, where we introduce feces into the model, we allow uh, those feces to reach a, a microbiome steady state usually for two weeks. We then introduce C. diff spores. Those C. diff spores will just gradually be excreted but by the because of the intact microbiome. So we have to give another dose of C. diff spores. We then use the antibiotic we're investigating and see whether it induces C. diff infection or not. And we're monitoring for the microbiome for C. diff, C. diff toxin and so on. The antibiotics on the left in red all induce C. diff infection. The antibiotics on the right, in green, do not. And uh, to, to cut a long story short, um, those results uh, mirror the, um, there are no absolutes in, in, in clinical practice, but they mirror the, um, the C. diff risk rating um, of antibiotics. So the antibiotics on the left clinically are known and appreciated to be high, high or higher risk C. diff infection antibiotics, whereas those on the, on the right um, are, are the, the opposite. Um, and I'm just going to uh, pick two of those, uh, amatocycline and moxifloxacin. Uh, uh, moxy induces C. diff infection in, in the gut model, uh, amatocycline does not. Um, and I'll just give you a, um, a one clinical trial snapshot, and, and the, the key data are highlighted in blue at the bottom here. Uh, and, and they show that uh, in, in the clinic, this clinical trial of patients treated with either moxifloxacin or amatocycline uh, for, and they all had um, uh, pneumonia, community-acquired pneumonia, um, there were, um, uh, I'm struggling to see the text, it's so small on my screen here, but I think from memory there were no cases of C. diff infection um, in the amatocycline recipients. Um, whereas uh, there were, um, I think it was 10 cases um, in the uh, in the moxifloxacin recipients. So uh, a clinical trial database um, uh, to show that at the stark difference in C. diff risk, which mirrors what happens uh, in the gut model. Um, now uh, um, we've done. Other work uh, more recently, uh, some of you may have been aware that there was a Nature publication which claimed that a food additive called trehalose um, could be responsible for C. diff infection, and the authors actually went even further based on animal model data uh, to claim that trehalose may have driven. Uh, the Rabotype 027 NAP1 BI epidemic. Uh, that publication, I think, was incorrect. We published um, uh, data in, in eBioMedicine where we re refuted uh, why that was the, the case, and we included in that gut model data that showed that trehalose did not, does not, uh, induce C. diff infection. And others, in the, completely independent of us, have gone on to produce data, um, also refuting that original nature claim. So we then, what, what else we can do with this model is um, the first part of this diagram is is what I really the, the experimental procedure is really what I've just been showing you, uh, where up up until the end of the green arrow, where we where we're inducing C. diff infection. Now, of course, when we want to now look and see is, is our new treatment option effective, then we follow the same 
uh, course here, but the model is longer because once we've induced it infection, then we put into the model um, the, uh, the, the drug, whether it's an antibiotic or a non-antibiotic, to see whether it can, um, whether it can uh, bring about a cessation of C. diff infection, and following even further, do we see recurrence, yes or no? Um, I'm not going to show you uh, uh, too, too many of these data sets because they're, they're hard to read, but essentially, um, and I just show you, th this is what happens uh, when you monitor C. diff spores in blue, C. diff total viable count in red, but most importantly, most importantly, C. diff toxin levels, which is in black, in the dotted black line and, and the crosses. And this is when, um, in, in period um, uh, uh, C here, what we've done is added to the model, um, uh, uh, sorry, in period B rather, we have added ketotaxin, which if you remember from one of the earlier slides, uh, is an antibiotic that induces C. diff infection. And the induction of the C. diff infection here is you can see the large spike in the dotted line in period B where toxin, which wasn't present, suddenly appears. And that toxin appearing coincides with a divergence of the, uh, of the blue and the red line here, which represents C. diff germination. When C. diff germinates, the population germinates, and as it goes back into spore form, that's when it produces toxin. What we also did in this experiment, though, is we went one stage further, and in period, we, we, we allowed C. diff infection to part run its course through period C, and then in period D, we added to the model, rather than kefotaxin, we added desacetyl kefotaxin, which is a metabolite, it's the major metabolite that happens, occurs in the human body, uh, and we added that to the model instead, and what we saw was a resurgence in period D of C. diff infection. And this fact that the parent molecule, kefotaxin, and its major metabolite, desacetyl kefotaxin, both induce C. diff infection, and that probably goes some way to explaining why this antibiotic, this kefosporin, is so um, uh, relatively high risk for C. diff infection. Uh, so, the other thing we, we, we do, we've been doing this more, more recently for the last five or ten years, um, is, is of course looking in detail at the microbiome um, within the model. And I'm going to summarize some of the data here uh, just to show um, uh, the stark changes that happen. And if you compare the picture, just the colors um, in, the, in the pie charts, uh, of the microbiomes on the left, which is before the antibiotic goes into the model. Um, and if you look at the top line, the bottom line, they're, they're, they're similar, pre-antibiotic. But then look at the derangement, the dysbiosis that happens um, when you um, add the antibiotic, ketraxone at the top, and levofloxacin at the bottom. Um, and um, even when you go three weeks out, if we move to the far right uh, uh, pie charts here, um, you do not, three weeks later, uh, get back to baseline. There was, there was a, a, a more, a closer return to baseline for levofloxacin than there was uh, keftriaxone. So, so the derangement that occurs, the storm that occurs, um, uh, can last well belong, beyond the five days um, of antibiotic exposure that occurred um, here. Um, these are examples, uh, unfortunately, of two C. diff treatment antibiotics, um, cadazolid um, and serotomycin, um, that, that did not progress beyond their uh, phase three clinical trials. Quite simply, um, not because they had no activity, no utility against C. diff infection, but they were no better than vancomycin. And we saw signals in the gut models prior to these clinical trials that suggested that this would happen, and unfortunately, 
um, uh, that did happen. And, and those signals were either actually seeing recurrence occurring in the model um, and or seeing microbiome changes that are associated with an increased risk of recurrence. For example, getting uh, uh, blooms of overgrowth of, of Enterobacteriaceae. Uh, this is a slightly different scenario where, um, yes, we've done uh, work with fidaxomycin in the model before the clinical trials were formed and we'd shown and predicted that it would be efficacious and of course history showed that fidaxomycin is extremely efficacious at treating C. diff infection. But we went further and we did a series of, of, of other experiments um, where we looked and the, the, the reference for this is the top um, paper shown saying efficacy of alternative uh, fidaxomycin, etc. We looked at alternative dosaging um, uh, uh, schedules for fidaxomycin. Uh, and basically, it was out of this work that we suggested that by lengthening the, the dosage of fidaxomycin, and that by lengthening we mean spacing out the dosing, extending the dosing, that we could um, show that fidaxomycin is more efficacious, less likely to lead to recurrence. Uh, and we showed its effects on you know, what happens to the microbiome and so on in that context. And we suggested um, a, an extended dose of fidaxomycin. Subsequently, that work led to the clinical trial, which is shown in the bottom here, um, and that clinical trial uh, which is known as Fidaxomycin Extend, was successful. And it showed that um, the uh, extended dosage of Fidaxomycin was indeed associated with a reduced risk of recurrence compared with conventional dosaging of Fidaxomycin. So another um, uh, good prediction from the model. Uh, so I, I've nearly finished now, um, just a couple of slides left. Um, so uh, the, the things um, that are uh, good about the model, uh, I've sort of tried to summarize uh, on the left-hand side, um, and I'm not going to go through those for time, uh, but I, you know, it, it would be remiss of me not to point out that this model, whilst it is highly predictive, it's a low-throughput model. It, it, relies on, it relies on lots of love and attention and care. It's expensive. It's limited capability to do repeats. And, we're, and we're, we are primarily, because it's a low throughput model, looking at before and after experiments within the model. So we've got a control period, we do something, and then we look what happens. Yes, we, we can have a control model where we don't do the something, but um, it, it's difficult to control everything we do because it's a low throughput model and, and we're limited on how many models we can run concurrently. So it all adds up to, it does have these limitations. And I'm going to uh, address those very briefly before I finish. Um, what, what, I, what I would uh, show though is that, uh, before I doing that, is that we have extended beyond C. diff infection. We've done work um, on, and increasingly do, are doing work on antimicrobial resistance issues um, uh, uh, to, to look at the impact of antibiotics on resistant flora to see whether we get blooms or whatever, um, to look at transfer of resistance genes and indeed um, the emergence of resistance um, during antibiotic exposure. And one example of this was um, this publication shown at the bottom uh, where we looked at uh, the dissemination um, of um, carbapenem uh, resistance genes um, in the model. Um, and uh, too much detail to go in here, but, but basically what I would draw your attention to on this model where we exposed, we put into the model um, uh, a KPC, a carbapenem resist, uh, resistant strain, um, and then we monitored that and you can see the monitoring um, uh, in the green traces, the light green and the dark green traces. Uh, those show the carbapenem resistant strain which appears after, not before, after we add the, the KPC. The surprise to us was the purple. And that, to cut a long story short, was the emergence of E. coli strain, strains, um, a strain carrying the same resistance gene. 
We repeated this, found the same phenomenon, and basically what we are showing here is that the resistance genes in, in, in KPC uh, is jumping into a resident E. coli in, in the uh, microbiome within the model and uh, under antibiotic pressure, seeing a bloom of those. So again, another example, and we, we see, we know that this is what happens in humans, unfortunately, that, that KPC is a very, um, very effective at disseminating uh, its genes um, and uh, developing different versions of its genes, mutating. So the last thing I want to leave you with, and I, and I showed you and I tried to bear my soul about the, the downsides of the model, low throughput and expense and so on, and that's, that's the big brother model, the one A, picture A on the, on the left, upper left here. Where we've moved to over the last, um, some hard work over the last two to three years in particular uh, by Tony Buckley and Ines Mora um, in, in my group, um, is to develop what we call affectionately as our mini models. And you can see from the size of the power sockets, and they are, I don't know if you can see my cursor here, you possibly can't, but there are power circuits on the wall um, uh, in the middle, the, the middle height of the um, gut model A, the big brother. And those same power sockets are shown, you can see them much more clearly on model B. And that gives you some idea of the scale and shows you how big the model A is compared with model B, the mini models. And these mini models allow us much greater throughput and they're, more, they're less expensive. We can do many more repeats um, and we are hopeful that this is going to be our way forward. But of course, do the data from Big Brother model A, which I've hopefully convinced you are reflective of human uh, behavior. Uh, do their data, uh, can we mimic those? Um, in, in our mini models. And, and essentially, um, if I show you that the standard Big Brother model uh, data on the left, uh, to traces A and B, and compare those uh, with uh, the same data um, from the mini models um, in graphs C and D. And all you need to do is just glance at the traces. And you can see without knowing anything in detail uh, about what happens to Enterobacteriaceae, um, uh, et cetera, or Enterococci, or total bacterial counts, you can see that in general, the patterns and the traces you see in the bit in Big Brother main model uh, on the left are mimicked on the right. Uh, and this is giving us confidence that the mini models are the way forward. So uh, I'm sorry I've probably run two or three minutes over time. Um, uh, I've uh, uh, I have the honor, I've had the honor to, to speak to you um, and you know, pr promote um, a team's worth, work, worth of work and not my work, it's our work and the, the, the key people in this team are pictured here but it's a, as I said before, it's a team of, of 30 individuals rather than just the uh, six, seven that I show here. So thank you to all of you, you know who you are and thank you to you for listening today. Dr. Wilcox, thank you so much for a wonderful talk, a wonderful overview, uh, important information with regards to the modeling, and we appreciate your participation on an, on an annual basis with this conference. You had a dynamic that we really do, we really do appreciate. Um, we're now going to shift gears, uh, and we're going to focus on the microbiota and the technological advances uh, we, have, we have coming in the near future. I'm so delighted to introduce Dr. Sahil Khanna. He's a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Sahil is going to be discussing microbiome therapeutics in 2021. Almost there for C. difficile. Sahil? Um, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, and good morning to people who are in morning time zones. There are some disclosures. And I'm going to talk about where fecal transplant is in 2021, what are the performing principles, especially as COVID has impacted us, what are success rates and adverse events, and then I'll go over in a consolidated manner the different microbiota restoration therapies that are out there. We've heard data in more details uh, earlier today, and I'm going to consolidate some of that information and uh, discuss where the evidence is and how far um, is the future from today. 
We'll start with the clinical case, a 51-year-old male with a history of renal transplant who presents with diarrhea for three days. As you heard earlier today, that antibiotics are a major risk factor. So this person had taken clindamycin because of penicillin allergy. This was a prophylactic dose that he unfortunately had to take. Presents to the emergency room with dehydration, tachycardia, abdominal tenderness, mild abdominal guarding. We do uh, initial laboratory evaluation. The white count's elevated, creatinine's elevated. And you're thinking this person probably has C. difficile infection based on the history and clinical presentation. And you admit person to the hospital for suspected C. difficile infection. As you admit the person, try to figure out, are there different treatment guidelines that are out there? And 2021 is an incredible year, I would say, for C. difficile, because we have seen not one, but two, three different new guidelines that came out in 2021. I'm showing a, a table from one of those guidelines, and I'll compare and contrast to the other guidelines, too. If you look at the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines that were updated about eight years after the initial uh, update in 2013, we now say that we don't use metronidazole except for low-risk patients and use either vancomycin or fidaxomycin for initial non-severe episodes. We also uh, are recommending fecal transplant on a case-by-case -case basis for an initial severe episode. And if you contrast the initial episode guidelines with the Infectious Diseases Society of America or the European ID guidelines, they do recommend to consider fidaxomycin, especially the European guidelines say that if there's somebody that's at a high risk of recurrence with risk factors for recurrence like age or comorbidities, you should use fidaxomycin or vancomycin resource permitting. For an initial fulminant episode, not a lot has changed except we are now recommending fecal transplant on a case-to-case -case basis. And then for first recurrence, vancomycin tapers have moved up. One could also use fidaxomycin if needed. And then for both the initial episode and first recurrences, uh, it is being recommended to use intravenous bezlotuximab as an adjunct. It's not a primary treatment, just like it, just like fecal transplant is not a primary treatment. These are as an adjunct to prevent recurrences and can be given at any point of time when somebody is on antibiotics. At least that's how the trials were done. More data on bezlotuximab is emerging. And then finally, for three or more episodes or two or more recurrences, a short course of antibiotics followed by FMT. Now, FMT has made into guidelines uh, both here and in Europe, and the GI Society guidelines also recommend to repeat FMT if uh, there is an early recurrence. And then if you read the last bullet of this slide, if FMT is not available, which is becoming the case in 2021 because of the pandemic, one could consider long-term suppressive vancomycin. So a lot has changed. There's lots more uh, FMT in these guidelines, and newer drugs have made it through to the guidelines now. So let's come back to our patient. We treat the patient with vancomycin for 10 days for first episode. He does better, as most patients do, on vancomycin when they have true C. diff infection. And uh, unfortunately, two weeks later, the symptoms return, and the second episode is managed with fidaxomycin with an extended regimen, as Dr. Wilcox had mentioned earlier in his talk, that that extended regimen has shown to be have lower risk of recurrences. It feels better, but has a third episode, which is the rate of recurrence that we see in people who've had two or more episodes is over 40%, and after three episodes is over 60%. So the first question that arises in clinical practice is, could we have done something differently to, to prevent this recurrence from happening? And in my mind, I think about eliminating the modifiable risk factors for C. difficile, including antibiotics, PPIs, hospitalization, avoiding sick contact, and as has been discussed earlier, consider using a microbiome sparing agent for treatment early on, such as fidaxomycin or vancomycin, as the IDSA guidelines suggest. Unfortunately, cost remains to be an issue. And then finally, one could have used immune-enhancing strategies against C. difficile, including intravenous bezlotuximab. And the holy grail of uh, preventing future recurrent episodes is restoring the gut microbiota with fecal transplantation or similar modalities. So to talk a little bit about microbiota restoration, I think it's important as practitioners to, for us to describe the steps of microbiota restoration for our patients. In my mind, step one is to start an antibiotic to control the active symptoms. FMT or similar therapies at this time are not used to treat active C. diff. 
they are used to prevent the next episode from happening. In most people, diarrhea would improve in three to five days, but the risk of recurrence after three episodes is 60% or even higher. At that time, you start discussing recurrence prevention by restoring the microbiome, by considering FMT or fecal transplant at a center that's still able to perform FMT with decreasing availability, especially with open biome, winding down some of its uh, operations, and considering clinical trials that are still available um, despite us having some phase three data, there are open label trials that are available of microbiome restoration therapies. If you've got patients who are hospitalized, the majority are discharged prior to gastric FMT. And then finally, uh, if you are considering FMT, make sure that you are prescribing enough antibiotics such as vancomycin or fedaxomycin, whatever insurance covers in that instance, and taper it down to the lowest effective dose until FMT is being discussed with that patient to avoid the next recurrence and next hospitalization from happening. To summarize the literature that's been out there over the last several years for microbiota restoration with fecal transplantation, after one or more FMTs, we're seeing that the efficacy is 85% or higher to prevent recurrences. We are seeing lower rates of success in clinical trials compared to clinical practice, as is seen in many instances in medicine. FMT is superior to oral vancomycin, as has been shown in trials in the United States and also um, in Europe. One could use fresh stool or pre-thawed stool from a well-screened donor, and the efficacy is similar. And at this time, we don't think there is an effect of donors on efficacy, per se, compared to some of the diseases like inflammatory bowel disease. However, we still continue to struggle with donor screening and recruitment standardization, as Dr. McGowan had mentioned, because pandemics like COVID-19 can impact donor screening. There are few recipient contraindications at this time, severe immunocompromised status, is a contraindication, especially if there is a neutropenia that is seen. Other immunocompromised status, such as somebody on anti-TNFs or even organ transplant, is not a contraindication to receiving fecal transplantation. We are seeing some more adverse events as we are doing more of these, including um, ESBL E. coli transmissions that were reported in 2019, and we'll discuss them in brief in the next few slides. And that's where long-term follow-up data are needed and the AGA has a 10-year registry that has been set up to follow patients with FMT long-term. And then finally, um, uh, I did notice some questions in the chat too. Um, FMT is not FDA-approved, as Dr. First had replied uh, correctly, and the FDA guidance is still in draft phase, and we still consider FMT or similar therapies to be experimental. So what about COVID-19? We've had one talk on COVID-19 already looking at the incidence of C. difficile. Uh, with COVID-19 uh, infection and the data that is coming out that we're seeing some decreased incidence in some places. But this, as a, a pandemic, SARS-CoV-2 as a bug, has impacted our ability to perform FMT. And why is that? That's because at this time, most of the FMT that we do is dependent on procurement of stool from well-screened donors. So who are well-screened healthy donors? These are people who've undergone health and infectious screening, make sure they don't have any risks that can prevent them from being a blood donor and beyond. They can't have traveled to an endemic area. They uh, uh, can't have antibiotics, no hospitalizations, um, no microbiome-associated diseases such as diabetes or obesity or anxiety or depression or uh, GI disorders. And if you exclude a lot of those, more than 95 to 97% of our population are potentially excluded from being stool donors. We check our stool uh, from donors for enteric pathogens and for multidrug resistance infections and also for blood-borne pathogens uh, to look at risk. This is because we are seeing adverse events. There have been two instances of ESBL bacteremia when FMT was being done for experimental indications, including one death that we can directly attribute to FMT um, so these are instances that we need to continue to watch. There have been instances of uh, E. coli transmission leading to diarrhea. And in today's world, if we have to recruit a donor for uh, FMT, we need to screen them for COVID-19. Um, and as was mentioned earlier, there's no good stool test which is validated. So we tend to think about doing nasopharyngeal screening. We need to tend to think about doing uh, serologies but also bookend testing, meaning you test before you donate, you test two weeks after you donate, and quarantine stool in between 
before and after donation. And then in today's world, at least in our practice, we do think uh, that uh, donors should be vaccinated for SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, and our donors are vaccinated in our practice. So showing a couple of these, a couple of data slides, this is one of the landmark clinical trials that uh, Dr. Colleen Kelly had led of uh, patients who had received either FMT, which was donor material, or autologous FMT, getting their own stool back. And if you look at the data here, in the overall cure rates were close to 90% in the uh, FMT arm compared to 61% in the placebo arm. But what's interesting is, if you look at the very last bar graph here, um, on patients who were in the New York site, um, didn't have a statistically significant or clinically meaningful difference between FMT um, and the placebo or the autologous FMT arm. That is because of diagnostics. And several patients who either had cured C. diff or had post-infection IBS unfortunately got enrolled. And this for diagnostics are very important as we read and interpret the data around FMT or any other C. diff therapies for that matter. So talk about the good. Let's talk about the bad and the adverse events. Um, other than the ESBL E. coli and the shigatoxin-producing E. coli, the most common adverse event is transient constipation, diarrhea, or abdominal discomfort, which is self-resolving. Fraction of patients end up developing post-infection irritable bowel syndrome. Hard to say related to C. diphtheria or related to the uh, FMT itself, but people do get that. And single case reports of neuropathy, Sjogren's, ITP, arthritis, and obesity have been reported, and we still need to study the long-term effects of FMT um, and these therapies, as was discussed earlier. So putting all of this together, um, the practice is heterogeneous. There is issues with donor screening. We need to make sure that we're ensuring safety. Um, we are currently not standardized on how donor screening or recruitment is done, how stools prepared and stored how patients are prepared, and how long do we need to follow these patients up for both safety and endpoints. When you put all of that together, there is a need for standardization of the processes of FMT. With current products being derived from donors, we still don't have complete standardization in several products between one capsule or another or one enema or another, but at least the processes of FMT need to be standardized in 2021 and going forward. And also there is no existing approved product, so with clinical trials of standardized therapies, we are moving towards FDA approval. Um, in the next few slides, I'll consolidate the data uh, from several capsule-based and enema-based uh, products, and uh, we'll go from there. So alphabetically, um, CP101 uh, is a, what we define as a full-spectrum microbiota. The manufacturing details are kept proprietary at this time, and this product has successfully completed a phase two clinical trial of over 200 patients at over 50 sites. And uh, in terms of diagnostics, both patients who were diagnosed with PCR or EIA were allowed to be included in, these, uh, in this trial. And if you look at the eight-week data, 74.5% cure rate with the CP101 arm compared to 615 with the placebo arm. When I say 61.5 with the placebo, it's not technically placebo, that's the antibiotic cure rate. And there was no difference in adverse events, and no serious adverse events were attributed to the CP101 arm. A larger phase three trial is being planned at this time. Moving on uh, to the second capsule-based therapy, RBX7455, um, the difference between this and some of the other capsules is that it is stable for a long time on room and room temperature, so it can be administered non-frozen, and patients can take multiple day dosing at home, which is a game changer from some of the other therapies. These are data from a phase one trial that were published um, uh, earlier this year in print and online last year, where um, 30 patients were in a dose-finding study of capsules leading up to from two, two capsules twice a day to all the way up to four capsules twice a day for four days, and if you look at the overall success rates, was 90%. These are open-label data, and at this time, a larger placebo-controlled trial is being planned for this particular therapy. So moving on, uh, I know Dr. McGowan had covered these in detail, so I'll just give a, a, a high-level overview. SCR109 is a, a Firmicutes-derived, or stool-derived Firmicutes capsules, about 50 species, capsules that are kept frozen, and there was a 96.7% secondary cure rate in an open-label study. This was followed by a phase two study, and this was a very big learning experience for the entire CDIS community 
where we did see here after a very successful phase one study with the phase two study did not show a statistically significant or clinically meaningful difference between the active arm and the placebo. The reasons are multifold, but the most important reasons are diagnostic, where some patients who didn't truly have C. diff ended up being in the trial, and then there perhaps could have been a dosing, uh, a dosing difference between the phase one and the phase two study. Um, series learned a lot, and we all learned a lot from this particular uh, trial, and a larger phase three study was designed uh, and I'm presenting the high-level uh, data from that phase three study as Dr. McGowan had presented the details earlier today. This is four capsules daily or placebo for three days total, patients with three or more episodes within nine months. And the difference here between this and other studies is that only patients who had a toxin-positive C. difficile assay were enrolled. Over 180 patients were enrolled and this was uh, given again after antibiotics and primary endpoint of C. diff recurrence at eight weeks, close to 88, 89% success rate or resolution rate to the ACR109 arm compared to 59% with placebo, meaning antibiotics followed by placebo, highly statistically significant, clinically meaningful. So those are the donor-derived capsule-based studies. Let's move on to the um, enema-based therapies, and I know um, earlier that uh, had done an excellent job uh, going through all of the data for these capsule for these enema based studies um rbx 2660 probably has had the largest number of studies that have been done to date including phase 1 open label phase 2 blinded phase 2 open label phase 3 blinded and now phase 3 open label uh, safety only study that's being done um this is again derived from human stool 50 grams of stool in 150 cc's um, of a diluent and about 10 to the 7th organisms per cc are expected uh, in, in the enema. These are enemas given after uh, an external antibiotic treatment, again, with a very rigorous donor protocol similar to other products. And this has completed phase 1 through 3 studies. And here I have two graphs comparing the phase 2 and phase 3 data. And if you look at the phase 2, which was comparing two active enemas to two placebo enemas to one active and one placebo. Very interesting data, again, from a phase two study where one active enema was statistically superior to one placebo enema, 67 to 46%, but two enemas were not. These data were then taken to a phase three trial with a Bayesian analysis where some patients with similar inclusion criteria were able to be borrowed into the phase three study, and we did see it's a statistically significant difference with a posterior probability of superiority of 98.6%, where one active enema showed 70.4% success rate compared to 58.1% of antibiotics followed by placebo. It's another one of those uh, products that has now successfully completed phase three clinical trials. So those were all donor-dependent. How about donor-independent, or can you actually have products which have not been derived from donors too. So that's where the excitement is, is, is going further, and I'm uh, very excited to present the high-level data. I know that uh, colleagues from Vedanta will be presenting more details about this. Um, these, this is the 303, which is a rationally defined live bacterial consortia of known bacteria. So every capsule is similar to the, to the next capsule. You're not dependent on donors. And these are patients who uh, had it at least one recurrence or at a high risk of recurrence, and they were into, divided into three arms of high dose, low dose, VU303, and placebo, and overall 79 patients were enrolled. Um, these are data from a press release where the VU303 high dose had over 80% success rate compared to less than 60% success rate in the placebo arm, um, statistically significant, clinically meaningful, and we're looking forward to get more data from, uh, from this product, including microbiome data. So my take-home points, microbiota restoration is becoming the cornerstone to prevent recurrent C. difficile infection. Um, FMT, we know, is safe and effective for multiple recurrent C. difficile infection. It has several challenges in today's world, including external forces, disrupting uh, donor screening, and also uh, in the United States, the largest tool bank slowly winding down um, the availability of FMT. We know that current FMT practices are heterogeneous, and with the challenges in the heterogeneity, 
we do think that the standardized microbiota restoration products are the future of FMT. Um, we now have phase three data from two of these products, phase two data from one of this, from two of these products, and phase one data from one of these products. And I think as we get more and more of these data, we're, pro we're going to be seeing uh, more than one of these products go through the FDA approval process. I think going forward, um, there is a very high likelihood that these products will replace how we do conventional FMT. These products will become FDA approved, uh, and the FDA guidance for FMT will continue to evolve. And I suspect the FDA would go back and suggest that now when we have approved products, we probably should be doing FMT, which is donor directed only under INDs. But more to come on that. Um, very exciting. Um, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you to see the foundation for having me here today. Uh, and uh, it's been a delight listening to everyone. Uh, Sahil, what a wonderful talk. Thank you. You've covered a ton of information very clearly and concisely in a short period of time. What's nice about what you did was we've heard a lot of detail in several of these different spaces uh, with regards to SCR 109, RBX 2660. We'll hear a little bit about CP 101 later today, CE 303, but you gave us a nice overview of all that and contextualize it all. So thank you so much for that great presentation. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.